Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Abundant Life. Wherever you're gathering with us from, thank you for gathering with us today to worship the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, a brand new study we begin. We'll be working through the book of Daniel this year, verse by verse, line by line. And I'm so excited about the study that begins today. His name was Nikita Khrushchev. He was the Russian premier of the Soviet Union from 1953 to 1964. In this picture, 1960, he is addressing a group of ambassadors from the West, He absolutely hated the West. He took off his shoe. He pounded it on his desk. That was the kind of Russian premier he was in his animated hatred for the Western Hemisphere. But he's remembered more for something he said in 1956 in the Moscow embassy where there were 1,500 Western ambassadors gathered where he looked into the camera And he said these words, we will bury you. Now understand, this was at the height of the Cold War. The nuclear arms race was beginning to heat up. And with those words, we will bury you, the entire Western civilization, the Western world thought that he was threatening nuclear war. When he was pressed for an explanation a few years later of what he really meant, what he meant was this. This is what he said. He wasn't threatening nuclear war. What he was saying is that communism would outlast capitalism and the Soviet Union would live to see the U.S. collapse from within. Now, with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, history proves that communism is the failure and economic freedom is the winner. But... As you consider those words, 65 years later, they do indeed have a prophetic ring. I've entitled this message, We've Been Invaded, because we have not been invaded by an outside army. No, we are not collapsing as a civilization from without. The collapse is happening from within. The walls have fallen. The foundation is in erosion. And when I consider our study through the book of Daniel, it's more relevant, I think, than it's ever been. I actually did the study through Daniel 11 years ago. And as I look back over the last 11 years, I'm still in awe of how much has changed in our world. We are watching a radical change happen in Western society, culturally, spiritually, morally, a radical disintegration of what was once Judeo-Christian civilization. It's what I'll be referring to in the days ahead as a Babylonian worldview, a Babylonian value that is now permeating the world in which we live. You see, no army, not even the Soviet Union, could destroy our nation from without. But there's a silent invasion that has taken place from within. 
Now, as we get going this morning, I have to tell you, this study that we're about to do, these, some messages will be very informational, some of them will be very instructional, some of them will be very inspirational, and before we get really to the practical application, I have to give you a lot of information. So today, we're going to do a little flyover, kind of a 30,000-foot view, okay? And I'm going to tell you up front, there's a lot of information that's going to be flying at you, but the reason why so many people read the Bible and don't understand the Bible is because they don't understand the historical, cultural application. The Bible is real history. So anytime you start studying any book of the Bible, you begin by answering the question, what happened? What is the history and the context historically of the book that we're about to study? And so today, I'm going to give you a lot of historical information. It's going to be a lot coming at you because we got a lot to do. Now, church, listen, there's so much to do in the book of Daniel. I'm not going to complete it all on Sunday mornings, which means I'm going to do a lot of the teaching, a lot of these lessons are going to be shot in a video studio, and it's going to kind of be supplemental to what we do on Sunday mornings, and we'll let you know when we post those, and we'll kind of fill in some of the blanks and kind of fill in some of the, the deeper teaching and do a deeper dive then in that capacity for those that want to go a little deeper and a little farther. I just want to warn you up front, you need to buckle up. I mean, right now, okay, because I'm just about, I'm about, to, I'm about to hit drive, put the pedal to the metal, and we're about to fly at 120 miles an hour in a 70-mile-an-hour zone, okay? So look up somebody right now and say, buckle up, buttercup. Go ahead. Buckle up, buttercup. Online, go ahead. Buckle up, buttercup. You better buckle up because we're about to hit it, okay? On your mark, get set, go. All right, now Daniel chapter 1 through 6 is history. And I'm telling you this because anytime you start to study any book of the Bible, you need to organize it. How does the book divide? In this case, the book of Daniel divides really easily. There are two sections in the book of Daniel. The first section is a history section. The second section is a prophecy section. Now, it's not that there's no prophecy in the history section or any history in the prophecy section, but just generally speaking, Daniel divides this book primarily between history and then prophecy. Now, why does this matter? Because as you study history, what you learn is something about the present. You can't understand the present if you don't know anything about the past. The past is always connected to the present. And that's where this first six chapters is going to be so relevant to the world in which we're now living. Daniel is deported to Babylon in 605 B.C. He's one of the young Hebrew nobles that are taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar. At this time in history, the Babylonian Empire is just now coming into power. They are the reigning superpower of the ancient world at this time in history. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has besieged Jerusalem. He He'd actually been down in Egypt, expanding the borders of his father's empire. The first king and father of Nebuchadnezzar was a man in history known as Nebuchadnezzar. And as he's coming back from Egypt, having put down the Egyptian army, he's kind of in the neighborhood of Jerusalem, swinging by kind of in the neighborhood. He thinks, well, we might as well stop off at Jerusalem and take the city too. And it's here. We're going right by there. So they besieged Jerusalem, but what happens, he gets word from Babylon that his father has died. His father was kind of the the emperor, and his son, Nebuchadnezzar, was kind of the, the warrior general. And all of a sudden, he realizes, my dad has died. I'm now the emperor. I need to go back home and take care of some administrative affairs. I'm going to leave Jerusalem here, but I'm going to take some collateral with me. 
I'm going to leave this Jehoiakim on the throne, and uh, he's going to be my puppet king in Jerusalem. He'll do what I tell him to do, and just make sure he does. I'm going to take some collateral with me, 70 Hebrew children, 70 Hebrew nobles. That was a seat of the king, and Daniel was one of them. He's one of the first deported by the Babylonian Empire. There are actually three times Nebuchadnezzar would besiege Jerusalem, 605 B.C. being the first. And so Daniel was deported in one of these first waves of deportees back to Babylon. And so he's writing now his book from Babylon over the next 70 years as the Hebrews are in captivity in this Babylonian city. Now here's why this is relevant. If you want to see into America's future, just peer into Israel's past. You want to see the future, just look in the past. As it was in ancient Israel, so it is today in 21st century America. Now listen carefully. America is not a theocracy we never have been. America is not God's chosen nation we never have been. I tell you that because we as American Christians have a way of reading ourselves back into every passage in the Bible. All the Bible's written for you, it's not all written to you. No, Israel alone is God's chosen nation, not us. Ancient Israel was a theocracy, we are not. But I want you to see a pattern in history because what God is now doing, God has done. He doesn't want you to ever guess where he's going. If you wanna know what God is doing and where God is going, just look at where God has been and what God has done. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God of patterns. And here's the pattern we see in Scripture, a nation that claims to be godly, that then turns to idolatry, eventually goes into captivity. And that was Daniel's people, a people who were godly. They worshiped the true and living God. But after Solomon's death in 930 B.C., the kingdom split. Two northern tribes went their way. The two southern tribes went their way. The two, uh, ten northern tribes, known as Israel, went into captivity with the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C. Now, over a hundred years later, the two southern tribes have been invaded by Babylon, and Daniel is deported as a part of this invasion. Over and over again, God would send the prophets, he would send the preachers to warn them. Jeremiah was a contemporary, for example, of Daniel, and Jeremiah over and over again preached, we need to repent, we need to turn back to God, we need to turn back to the true and living God. They'd been worshiping pagan gods, they had fallen into idolatry, worshiping the false gods of, of the nations around them. And friends, I'm trying to tell you, when you turn from God, when you become apathetic toward God, it's true of nations, it's true of individuals, that spiritual apathy eventually turns to spiritual spiritual apostasy, which is spiritual anarchy, and that leads into captivity. And here we are in modern American society. Once a Judeo-Christian civilization with a Judeo-Christian worldview and values, increasingly we have become more pagan than Christian. 
And consequently, because we as a society have turned from God and to false gods, the pattern is always the same. And it may take generations. Listen, it doesn't happen in a day. It took over 300 years for the southern kingdom of Judah to go into captivity. But generation after generation after generation, it was a slow drip and a slow fade. And eventually, the gavel of God's judgment falls on nations that turn their back on God. A nation goes into captivity. Now that's the history. Now understand, chapter seven through 12 is prophecy. It's gonna help us understand what is happening and what is yet to happen. Now this is what I love about Daniel. It's the Old Testament commentary on the New Testament book of Revelation. You study these together. I completed a Revelation study back in 2017. I referred to Daniel a lot. As we get into this section of prophecy, we'll be referring a lot to Revelation. These two books go hand in hand. And what I love about the book of Daniel, listen, it is a supernatural book. We're gonna see Daniel makes prophecies about nations specifically and kingdoms that would rise and fall. As a matter of fact, hundreds of years ahead of time, he is going to correctly prophesy four Gentile world powers that would come. You have the Babylonian Empire, and he prophesied following the Babylonian Empire would come the Persian Empire, and after the Persian Empire, he prophesied the Grecian Empire, and after the Grecian Empire, he will prophesy the Roman Empire, and we're talking hundreds of years ahead of time. Now we have the benefit of history. We can look back at these prophecies because we now look back through the lens of history and we can see how he literally, perfectly, specifically, precisely made these prophecies and they all happened literally. I don't know, I just think that's amazing. Now for that reason, there have been skeptics and cynics that go, oh Dan, this, this couldn't be, this guy, this has to be a forgery. I mean, nobody could predict this stuff. He, he's going to predict Alexander the Great. Everybody here has heard of Alexander the Great, the first king of Greece that defeated the Persian Empire. He's going to predict the coming of Alexander the Great a full 200 years before Alexander was even born. He's going to predict in Daniel chapter 9 to the exact day the Lord Jesus Christ will enter Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the exact day, and he's going to do it over 500 years B.C. You say, oh, no, come on. Now, nobody can do that. I mean, only God could do something like that. Exactly. Only God can do something like that. See, I like my odds. All these prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, we can look behind us at all these prophecies that have been fulfilled, and it ought to give us confidence that all these prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled will also happen literally, absolutely, because so many have already. So without further ado, let's pick this up right here in Daniel chapter one and verse one. Are you ready for this? Are you buckled up? All right, here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, we know the third year, 605 B.C. Now, as I've told you, we're going to go warp speed. Like, we're going to go so fast, 120 miles an hour in a 70-mile-an-hour speed zone. I mean, here we go. We're going to get so far, so fast, they're running it completely through verse 1 today. 
There's a lot in verse 1. Now, right away, this is where skeptics and cynics want to point out a contradiction. All right? Now, here's the contradiction they want to point out. Daniel says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now, a contemporary of Daniel was Jeremiah, a Hebrew prophet named Jeremiah, that also prophesied and preached at the very same time as Daniel. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 25 and verse 1, what Jeremiah says was it was the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Daniel says it's the third year of Jehoiakim. So all the sinners go, see, come on. Daniel couldn't have been there. This must be a forger. If he's really there and an eyewitness, he'd surely know what year it was. Now, church, I'm telling you, this is so easy to reconcile. I mean, anyone that really seriously wants to study the Bible, this is simple Bible study, simple, simple stuff to reconcile. So what's going on? Daniel is using the Babylonian time of reckoning, whereas Jeremiah is using the Jewish time of reckoning. See, the Jews considered the year of ascension year one, the year a king ascended to the throne, even if it was at the end of the year, say November, they would count that as a full year, where the Babylonians did not count that as year one. They would count the ascension year as the year of his ascension, and then starting with the second year, begin counting year one. And so you have Daniel using Babylonian time, you have Jeremiah using Hebrew time, no contradiction whatsoever. Now you know what to say to your skeptical friends who say, oh, why are you studying the book of Daniel? Come on, everybody knows it's a forgery. All right, here we go. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now Babylon in the Bible is a very, very important city, a very, very important word. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to talk about Babylon. What does it mean? And why is it front and center in so much of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament? First of all, Babylon historically is one of the largest, greatest, and most wicked cities of the ancient world. One of the largest one of the greatest, most powerful, and yes, most wicked cities of the ancient world. In terms of size and influence, put it on the scope of a New York City, Tokyo, Japan, Mexico City. We're talking enormous by, uh, by, by ancient standards. In fact, historians tell us it was the first city in all of humanity that would reach 200,000 citizens. Enormous city by the standards of antiquity. Now you can go there today. It is today in the modern day nation of Iraq. It's about 50 miles south of Baghdad. It was part of the Sumerian Empire with its inception in between the Euphrates River where it sat on the Euphrates and the Tigris River is what is known as the Fertile Crescent or Mesopotamia. And it's there to this day. In fact, if you wanted to, you probably can't right now for a number of reasons, but you could go there and people have gone there. You have ruins of ancient Babylon right here. These are the very ruins that Saddam Hussein in the 1980s and 1990s wanted to rebuild. And he rebuilt and renovated a lot of ancient Babylon during his reign, Saddam Hussein, because he believed he was actually the reincarnation of Nebuchadnezzar. And his dream was to extend Iraq to bring back the Babylonian empire. Of course, he failed for a number of reasons, but it's very interesting that he thought he would be the one. Now, when you look at ancient Babylon, it was absolutely amazing, a breathtaking. German archaeologists have actually reconstructed one of the ancient wonders of the world. It's the Ishtar Gate. 
And this gate is actually on display today at a museum in Berlin. You have Saddam Hussein that rebuilt a lot of this gate and a lot of the ruins in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. And, and it's actually on display as it would have been in Daniel's day in Berlin in a museum. This is what Daniel would have seen after 800-mile journey being led from Jerusalem into Babylon. This is what he would have seen, absolutely remarkable, breathtaking gate and city by the standards of antiquity. Herodotus was an ancient historian. He tells us that the walls around Babylon was over 300 feet tall. It would have rose up out of the plains of Shinar. You'd have been able to see it for miles and miles around, breathtaking 300-foot tall walls, 87 feet thick. Herodotus said they could race chariots four abreast atop of these walls. Fortified city, remarkable structure. It was home to the seven wonders of the world, one of them being Nebuchadnezzar's hanging gardens. Nebuchadnezzar married a wife from a different part of the world that was very lush and green, and to remind her of home, he actually did what some called one of the seven wonders of the world, the infamous hanging gardens of Babylon. Now, that's a little bit about this ancient city, but what is most important to you and I today and moving forward is to understand that in the Bible, Babylon is a symbol of evil. It's more than simply a city. It's a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of a wicked world system that is anti-God and anti-Christ. You see this word Babylon over 280 times in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and most of the time it's being used as a metaphor. It's not a reference to the ancient city itself, but rather as a metaphor to a wicked world system that is anti-God and in opposition to the kingdom of God. And this wicked world system kind of morphs and comes and goes with one generation, one culture, one country to the another, but over and over again, for centuries, Century after century, you see Babylon as a metaphor of a wicked world system that is even now alive in 21st century America. And it all began with a man we know from Genesis chapter 10 by the name of Nimrod. If you want to go back to Genesis chapter 10 to see where Babylon began in Genesis 10 and verse 8, it says this. Cush begot Nimrod. Everybody okay still? Anybody need to pull over for a break? Bathroom break, don't you dare get up, not yet. Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. All right, Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. Now, Cush, who was he? He was the grandson of Noah. Nimrod is the great grandson of Noah. Noah, being the one who built the ark, brought his family on the ark and survived this universal flood that destroyed the earth. Church, it's honestly amazing that many people consider the flood of Noah a myth. Did you know that every single ancient people group in human history all have a story of a cataclysmic flood, a universal flood? Every single one of them. And I'm talking people groups that were separated by hundreds and hundreds of miles and sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not like they collaborated and got together and they all decided, hey, let's launch this myth. No, they were separated by centuries. They were separated by hundreds of miles, yet each of them have in their oral tradition the story of a cataclysmic flood. Yet people think, oh, it's just made up, it's a myth. How do these people make it up? 
They didn't even know each other. How did they collaborate their story? They were separated by hundreds of miles. No, there was a flood that destroyed the earth, exactly as Noah said. By the way, the ancient Chinese, their mark, their writing, their word for a flood is a boat with eight people on it. That's just one of many other stories of the ancients. You have Nimrod, who's the great-grandson of Noah. That's important. Remember that in just a moment. Cush begot Nimrod. His name is important as well. We know right away who he is. His name Nimrod means rebel or lord of rebellion. There's a reason why, I guarantee you, you can go back to the nursery today at Abundant Life, any one of our campuses, anywhere, and I will guarantee there's not one little baby boy checked in by the name of Nimrod. You got some Jacobs, Joshua's, good Bible names, Isaiah's, Ezra, Ezekiel's coming back. No Nimrods. No one would dare name their little boy Nimrod, because every time you call him, you're saying, rebel, come here. You little rebel, come here. Now, some of you may go home and call your little ones Nimrod. You're such a Nimrod. Don't. Don't. No shaming. But this is who he is. He's the Lord of rebellion. He's about to launch a rebellion against the God of heaven. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. First Chronicles chapter 1 calls him a mighty warrior. He was a warrior king. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Now understand, Hebrew linguists tell us this phrase before the Lord is not like Nimrod was hunting for the glory of God and he had this big trophy room with big bucks and he liked to show off his trophies of all of his hunting adventures and all for the glory of God. That's not what's going on here at all. Hebrew linguists tell us this phrase, we might say it this way today, he was in God's face. He was hunting in the face of God. I don't know exactly what that means. I do know paleobiologists tell us that some of the animals that went extinct in the ancient days went extinct because ancient man hunted them to extinction. And that's what paleobiologists tell us. It might be that he was literally hunting in the face of God out of rebellion to destroy God's creation. I don't know for sure. Uh, I, I, I do know that he was leading this rebellion in some capacity. He was in the face of God. He is a, a man of defiance. Now, we know historically this is the Ice Age. Sometimes people say, well, Pastor Phil, if the flood was such enormous and it covered the whole earth, where did all that water go? I got you now. I got you. Where'd that water go? Come on. Nobody can tell me where the water went. Gotcha. No, you don't. Have you ever heard of the Ice Age? It froze. The flood so radically altered the Earth's atmosphere and ecosystems that suddenly the animals that got off the ark went into a world that was not the same as the one when they went on the ark. Many of them could not adapt to the new climate. That's where a lot of the die-offs began. But it's also possible that Nimrod was hunting some to extinction because he was in defiance against God. Now look at what it says next. In the beginning of his kingdom, see, he was a king. And where was the beginning of his kingdom? It was Babel. He built a city that would become known as Babylon. And he built other cities, Eric, uh, uh, Akkad, and uh, Kalni in the land of Shinar. Hebrew is Shinar for the land of Sumer or Sumerians. The Sumerian kingdom, the Sumerian empire is the oldest empire 
in all of human history. It was founded in the Fertile Crescent on the Mesopotamian Crescent, the plains between the Euphrates and the Tigris. Now, what is interesting is it's also one of the oldest languages. What you're looking at here is one of the clay tablets written in cuneiform of what is called the Epic of Gilgash. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Epic of Gilgash, but it is the most ancient work of literature from all of antiquity. And the Epic of Gilgash is actually the story of one of the Sumerian kings by the name of Gilgash. And if you read and understand the Epic of Gilgash, what you see is King Gilgash is described almost exactly like the biblical Nimrod. The Epic of Gilgash describes Gilgash of being a mighty hunter, a mighty warrior, a warrior king. And in the Epic of Gilgash, get a load of this. The Epic of Gilgash actually records a conversation that this King Gilgash had with one of the survivors of this worldwide flood that had built a boat and brought his family onto the boat. I told you, every ancient people have in their oral tradition a flood story. The Sumerians are no different. And it records Gilgash's conversation with one of the surviving members of this worldwide flood that saved his family by building a boat. Now, that would make sense if indeed Gilgash is the biblical Nimrod because he would have had more than one conversation, I'm certain, with his grandpa Cush and even his great-grandpa Noah. We know the long ages and the long lives that were before the flood extended to sometime after the flood. Noah lived 500 years after the flood. He would have been alive during Nimrod's life, and it records a conversation with one that survived the flood. Now, I don't know this for sure. If Gilgash is Nimrod, if it's not Nimrod, it's probably one of Nimrod's sons because not only does it describe a conversation with one that survived the flood that Gilgash had, not only does it tell us he was a mighty warrior just like Nimrod, but he was also a warrior king. But check this out. In the Epic of Gilgash, we're told that Gilgash launched a war in defiance to the God that created this worldwide flood. Now, that's in the archaeological extra-biblical records, but don't you love seeing how the ancient archaeological record in some way corroborates with the biblical record? And as you see in the Epic of Gilgash, this King Gilgash launches an offensive, a war, against the God that created this flood, and now you start to see why he was in such defiance against God, to rebel against God. And now you have the infamous Tower of Babel that opens up in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 1. Anybody bring any road trip snacks? Beef jerky? Peanut M&Ms? All right, I'm doing okay. I don't need it. Never mind. All right, Genesis 11 verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they, speaking of Nimrod and his kingdom, journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down 
to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. What on earth was going on at this time in Babel or Babylon? You have them building this tower that would reach into heavens as an act of rebellion against God. In essence, what they're saying is, we will get to God, we will become God, we will be like God. You have Babel, it means gate of God. What were they doing in Babel by building this tower that would reach into heavens? They were building a gate to God, Bab, gate, El, God, Bab, El. Whatever was going on had much more to do with primitive men erroneously thinking they could build a tower that would reach into the heavens. Think about this over the course of time. How many towers have been built that didn't make God come down? How many shrines have been built to a false god that didn't make God come down? There was something going on at this time in history in Babel that got God's attention and what God said is we need to come down and dumb men down. This had a lot more to do with primitive man slapping brick and mud together thinking they could get to, now something was going on far more than that. Now, we know what was going on in Babel at this time from the Sumerian tablets, a 2,000 volume library that dates from the time of Sumer, and it tells us these ancient men were anything but primitive. They knew some of the secrets of the universe that have only recently been rediscovered in the last century. One of the Sumerian tablets actually has our solar system perfectly outlined with the planets in order and in the exact size relative one to another. How did they know that? See, these weren't primitive men at all. Now we know why they had such secrets because they were worshiping demons. They were worshiping fallen angels masquerading as gods that had come from the heavens. By the way, every ancient people group in the world have also in their oral tradition gods that came down from the heavens, cohabitated among human civilization to advance human civilization, and then went back to the heavens. That's what you discover in the Sumerian tablets. There was something going on far more than a tower that they thought erroneously could reach into heaven. They were trying to defy God by being God, by building a gate to God. Bab El. Look what God does. God says, come, let us, this is the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, a council within the Godhead, let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. And that's exactly what God does at this time in history, Genesis chapter 11. He confuses the language, and this is the time in history where people began to scatter out over the earth into language groups that would become tribal groups that would become the nations of the earth. And by, by dumbing down the language, they dumbed down the information. That information, that knowledge was lost. And I'm convinced we've only recently rediscovered that knowledge in the last 100 years. I'm convinced, in fact, we are back at the Tower of Babel in our day, in our age, that God is about to come down once again. God does something, God gets the last laugh, he always does. He changes the name from Bab-El, gate to God, to Babel. 
It means confusion. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, confusion, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Understand, Babylon is a metaphor of rebellion. Babylon is a metaphor of the kingdoms of this world in opposition to God's kingdom and over Samaria, and ancient Samaria. If you could go there today, you would find one ziggurat after another after another. The Tower of Babel would have been something like this. This one actually comes from the Ur of the Chaldees, where Abraham was called from. And these ziggurats, these step pyramids, dotted the landscape of ancient Samaria. It was a very religious system, but a wicked religious system that was in opposition against God's kingdom. You see, Babylon is the origin of all counterfeit and pagan religions from antiquity to the 21st century. Now you begin to see why Babylon takes up so much space in Scripture, Old Testament, Testament, New Testament, over 280 references because there is a common family tree of all the false religions from antiquity to the 21st century, and that family tree leads back to one origin, the city of Babylon. The Tale of Two Babylons, an epic work by a man known as Bishop Usher, where he traces pagan religion from the Tower of Babel down through the ages, clear to the time of Christ. And now you can start to see why Revelation 17.5 describes the end times religion this way. Revelation 17.5, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is how God describes the end times religion, the mother of harlots. What is a harlot? A harlot is a prostitute. We live at a time where the truth is being prostituted with lies. We live at a time where Christianity is being prostituted with the lies of the enemy. We live at a time where our nation is becoming more pagan than Christian. And now you can begin to see how God uses this term Babylon throughout Scripture. Babylon equals rebellion. And while the city of Babylon died long ago... The spirit of Babylon lives on. It's alive and well in 21st century America. In fact, I would suggest the spirit of Babylon has never been more alive in these United States than it is right now. Babylon equals rebellion. We are a generation in rebellion against God. We are a nation in rebellion against God. We live at a time where the church the church is becoming increasingly like mystery Babylon, prostituting the truth of God with the lies of the enemy. We live at a time where our civilization is in direct opposition and in the face of God. We live at a time where some of our lives look a lot more like Babel than it does the Bible. And right there is the problem. The enemy is not from the outside. No, the enemy's on the inside. We've seen the enemy, and he is we. 
And here's what Daniel wants us to remember. In this time of uncertainty and insecurity, in this time where it seems like the world is changing and good is called evil and evil is called good and righteousness seems to be retreating and wickedness seems to be winning, listen, the theme of the book of Daniel is God's sovereignty. That means he is completely, absolutely in control. The world's kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of our God will abide forever. Forever. If you're in the member of God's kingdom, you are on the winning side. No, the key is not getting God on our side. The key is us getting on God's side because this is how it ends in Revelation chapter 18. Look at what it says in verse 1. And after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her wrath for fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich for the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. And that is the message today. Come out of her, my people. The voice of Jesus is saying, Come out of Babylon. And the way you come out of Babylon is to get Babylon out of you. A separated people. Babylon the great has fallen. We know the end is coming. And God is going to destroy this Babylonian rebellion that began in Genesis chapter 10. And the day is coming. He will destroy all the kingdoms in opposition and his kingdom will come that will be without sin that will never ever end he says come out of her my people lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues for her sins have reached to heaven in Genesis chapter 11 they built a tower that would reach into heaven and now in Revelation 18 her sins have reached into heaven and the grace of God is no more. Judgment is coming. For her sins have reached to the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. This is the age of grace. Romans 10, 13, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But there is a day coming. It'll no longer be the age of grace. There are seven years of tribulation prophesied that are yet to come. And it is not an age of grace, the church age. It's going to be seven years of judgment, the judgment of God upon the rebellion of the kingdoms of men. Here's the good news. In the middle of all this bad news, it's really not new news. God has always saved a remnant, as he did in Daniel's day. God has always saved a remnant. And this is our opportunity to choose the kingdom of men or the kingdom of God. And the message of Daniel is this, like Daniel, we can't get out of Babylon, but it's time to get Babylon out of us. 
This is what I love about Daniel. We're going to see in Daniel chapter 1 in the weeks ahead. He had an authority crisis. He had an identity crisis. He had a morality crisis. We see Nebuchadnezzar brought these Hebrew nobles back to Babylon to re-educate them, re-indoctrinate them in the language and the customs and the culture, the worldview, the values of the Babylonians. But while he could get Daniel into Babylon, he could never get Babylon into Daniel. That's the message of Daniel chapter 1. Listen very carefully. We are captives in Babylon, but we are not captives to Babylon. Daniel was a captive in Babylon the rest of his life, but he was never one time a captive to Babylon. No, we're captives in Babylon. We can't leave anywhere. We can't go anywhere. Not yet. But we're not captives to this world. Daniel lived as a free man even while the world said, no, you're in captivity. You see, he did not fear the king of Babylon because he knew the king of heaven. And when you know the king of heaven, you need not fear any man. Jesus, I pray for every person here that, Lord, we would be as Daniel in this generation. We thank you for the good news. In the middle of so much of what feels like bad news, you've told us the end. Babylon will one day be fallen forever. The kingdom of our God will live forever. I pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit in the days ahead, for the power of God to be with us. I pray for every person of the sound of my voice, that God, your gracious hand will be with them. As our nation becomes increasingly Babylonian, that we would hear your voice come out from her, my people. God, that you'd bring revival to the bride of Christ, lest we become that harlot church, Mystery Babylon the Great. Be glorified, be magnified in all of our lives. And I pray it in Jesus' powerful, beautiful, marvelous, majestic, glorious, gracious name. And all the people of God say it, amen. Would you give Jesus the glory with me? Praise him, would you? Y'all, there are people right here. They love you. They care about you. Our prayer team, if you need prayer today, need somebody to minister to you, a word from the Lord of whatever it might be, that's why they're here. As others are going that way, someone come this way. God bless you. God go with you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.